What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another fantastic episode of Fraternity. I'm your host, the little brother Danny, and I'm here with my older brother, Sean. Come to daddy. <laughs> Come to daddy. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Welcome to the season finale of Fraternity Season 1. This has been our first year with this podcast, and it's all culminating into this, into this final episode where we're going to be talking about a great film. But before we get into that, I just want to say thank you to anyone that's listened to us. This year has been amazing starting this podcast and putting ourselves out there in the horror community. We've just felt so welcome, and it just feels so nice to be a part of this awesome community and be able to put out episodes for you and we get awesome feedback from everybody so we really appreciate it it's been an awesome year with ups ups and downs but we're really happy to be a podcast to be a part of the horror community and we're gonna keep it going 2022 is coming full steam ahead and fraternity is in no way stopping We've been through a lot this year, to say the least, Danny, and uh, yeah, here we are. It's almost hard to imagine less than a year ago, Fraternity didn't even exist, and now we're on episode 16, our season finale, wrapping up our first year of celebrating horror with our fond memories and fresh perspectives. And make no mistake, this is still just the beginning of Fraternity. We're going to take a little holiday break, and then we'll be coming at you with even more content. We had the idea to do this podcast a few years before we actually started recording. I'd say that just getting started was really the hardest part. It's been fun and easy since then. But yeah, we had no idea how successful this would be. I think we didn't put any expectations on ourselves. And we're just blown away. Yeah, it's crazy to imagine that it was just an idea, you know, a few months ago, and we worked hard to make this show happen, and we've been doing our best to stay on schedule and be a constant show, and I think our work is paying off, and I think we have a bright future ahead of us. I'm really happy with how the show has turned out in all of this, and not only the show, but our just our presence in general, and I'm really proud of you know, both me and Sean. And I think we've, if you listen to earlier episodes, you know, you can tell we're a little nervous, a little, you know, we didn't quite find our voice yet, but I feel like now more or less we have found our voice and how we want to be on the show and just have been comfortable with it. So that's what I'm really proud of is just how comfortable we have gotten in our roles. Definitely. And again, we just can't thank everybody who has listened to Fraternity, each and every one of our Twitter followers, our friends, our family, co-workers. It just means the world to us. And we can't wait to keep this momentum going with our first full year in 2022. But we aren't finished with 2021 just yet. We want to bring you the best because you deserve it. We know that there are plenty of horror podcasts out there. We just want to bring you a fun and unique experience. So tonight, we're going to end our first year with none other than Clive Barker's Hellraiser. This is another one of those films that I'm sure has been talked about to death, 
but we're going to give it to you one more time with our fondest memories and our freshest perspectives. So, Danny, you told me before we recorded that you've seen Hellraiser before, but I think you couldn't quite put your finger on when or how or where. Yeah. At first, I thought that uh, you had shown it to me, but upon thinking about it a little harder, I'm pretty sure that I watched it by myself because I don't remember ever discussing it with you, really. And I have a pretty good memory for where I've seen a movie and like where I was at that time in my life. And I just can't remember us watching it together. And, even, and you even said you don't remember us watching it together either. So I was just thinking about it more like, yeah, I think I had watched this. I talked about it before, but I had chosen to start to get into horror by, my, by myself. And around this time, it was around like 2016, 2017, I was watching, I watched Stepfather. That's when I watched that film. At that time, I watched Nightmare on Elm Street for the first time. And I'm pretty positive that at that time, I watched Hellraiser. And yeah, that was just at a time when I was getting into horror myself and wanted to see what the genre was all about. And I was just picking stuff that interested me. Cool. Because... I can't recall the first time I saw Hellraiser. It honestly feels like it's just always been a part of my life. And what can I say? Doug Bradley as Pinhead on the cover of Hellraiser is one of the most iconic and provocative images in all of cinematic horror history. It's one of the reasons there's like a dozen Hellraiser movies. And it's one of my favorite films of all time, for sure. The Hellraiser VHS boxes were always some of the most eye-catching whenever you would prowl the horror aisle of the local mom-and-pop video stores as a kid. I'm sure you remember that I've had numerous Hellraiser t-shirts through the years. Yes, I remember the specific one with Pinhead on the front. You wore that one so much, it was, it was a black t-shirt, but it, by the end of it, it was gray. <laughs> <laughs> I remember the shirt I had of the first film. It would always get me in trouble in school because some assistant principal would spot me and get all aggravated and make me turn the shirt inside out all because it had the word hell on it. (laughs) (laughs) I wore that shirt to concerts for years. For years, a Hellraiser shirt was my look when I would go to metal shows and local shows. It really just boils down to that pinhead design. I've had Hellraiser Bloodline shirts. I had that pinhead shirt I think you mentioned, which was made by Fright Rags. But if we're talking Hellraiser, let's talk about the movies. I was lucky enough to collect the first six films on VHS for my mom and pop VHS horror collection over the years. And I was able to do it while abiding by my always used and under $5 rules. Now I own the first three films in the brilliant, limited edition scarlet box that was released by arrow video definitely a prized box set of mine it's always in prominent display in my collection as for the film itself i want to say that i caught it on television once because i remember seeing the rebirth of frank scene with no context and just knowing that i needed to see this movie (laughs) (laughs) and then i did get a vhs copy when i was 12 or 13 Everyone knows this first film of the franchise barely features Pinhead or the Cenobites, 
it's kind of funny for how connected Ashley Lawrence's Kirsty became with the series. It's amazing how little she's in it, too. This film is really Julia and Frank's movie. It's a romance horror film, a genre I am in full support of. It has these otherworldly and supernatural elements that make it an unforgettable classic. But all that aside, what makes this film so good is the human element. The human story is so captivating, even when you're young. It's truly a testament to Clive Barker's storytelling. So, whenever you're ready, let's jump right in and celebrate Hellraiser. Awesome. But before we get into it, I just wanted to say we do have a Twitter. You can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at Fraternity. That's at Fraternity. You can DM us, tweet us, like our tweets, retweet us, anything of the like. It'll be a really big help. And we also have a YouTube channel. So you go over to YouTube, you type in Fraternity into the search bar, and we'll come up. And we're uploading our previous episodes to YouTube, but it's not just a static image or a video. It's a little bit of a visual treat. And you'll just have to go over there and see for yourself what Fraternity on YouTube is all about. And we have an email. So if you want to email us questions, comments, anything at all, you can email us. Fraternity at gmail.com is the email. Fraternity at gmail.com. And if you like what you hear, you can rate us. You can write a review on any of the platforms that you listen to us on. We'd really appreciate it. And don't forget, we're on a quest for 1,000 downloads by the end of the year. So share this episode with your friends. Listen to any episodes you may have missed in our library. And we greatly appreciate it. Yeah, we know it's Christmas time, we know it's the holidays, but sneak in a couple horror movies, you know. You're a horror fan, I know you are. You have that itch. You know, in between Home Alone and Ernest Saves Christmas, why don't you sneak in a Fraternity movie and then listen to the podcast? We know you want to. Yeah, we're on the goal for a thousand listens. We're at 600! Thank you so much to everyone. We went from 500 last week to 600 this week and we're on our way to 700 so we can do it guys we've got a couple weeks left in december until 2022 and i believe that we can do it i believe we can get to a thousand so let's do it guys so this fantastic score and opening credits gives way to a fantastic line what's your pleasure sir a merchant of sorts asks of a man named frank cotton Frank is after the box we see sitting on the table, the lament configuration. He slaps a wad of cash down with filthy fingernails. And of all the effects in the film, Frank's dirty-ass fingernails may be the most unsettling. <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> um, yeah. I'm a, like, fingernail-phobe. I don't know what to call it, but whenever someone has something in their fingernails, like, you ever watch a YouTube tutorial, and someone's got their hands in the frame, and it's just... You see their dirty fingernails. I can't stand it. I, anytime I have anything in my fingernails, I have to dig it out and clean it. I'm just, ugh, I don't know. Like an unboxing video <laughs> with dirty ass fingernails? Yeah. And it's like, or unclipped dirty fingernails. I'm like, dude, come on. <laughs> Let me just say this too. If you're watching unboxing videos, you might as well be listening to Fraternity. Okay. <laughs> Even Pinhead is probably like, Whoa, bud. Let's let's take care of that, huh? <laughs> I know we're into the unknown pleasures, Frank, but you gotta clean those. <laughs> <laughs> 
The merchant tells Frank to take the box, exclaiming, It's yours. And as Frank leaves, we hear the merchant say that it always was. Nothing creepy there. We then see Frank sitting on his knees in a dark room surrounded by candles. He moves his fingers about the box, attempting to solve the puzzle and unleash whatever secrets await inside. I thought it was interesting here because we don't know much about this box, right? But clearly certain people seem drawn to it. How would one even hear about this box? Is there an ad in the back of a magazine? I guess people that are into debauchery, you know, they hear things about this box that will be the ultimate experience and pain or pleasure and they just have to seek it out (laughs) either way frank solves the box and a transformation of sorts begins when all of a sudden chains with hooks shoot forth and dig into frank's flesh tearing him badly we see frank scream in fright and agony and then we get an exterior shot of the house followed by multiple shots of the interior we then enter the attic area where Frank was, and find it completely transformed. It now resembles some sort of hellish S&M bondage nightmare. You want to describe this room, Danny? Yeah, in this attic, we're seeing the aftermath of Frank's torture from the Cenobites, and there's just, like, chains hanging and swinging and clanging together. We see this gore all over the place, and we see Pinhead grabbing the few identifiable pieces of Frank left and kind of puzzling it together to reveal Frank's face. And I just want to ask, how the hell did Frank's eyeballs stay in his torn-off face and forehead? (laughs) It's delicate work they do. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I like they have the pillars in the room also spinning around and... They're almost like yeah. creepy, like flesh-covered monoliths. And we see Pinhead and we see the female Cenobite. And yeah, they piece Frank's face back together or what's left of it. And then we see Pinhead, or the lead Cenobite, as he's called in this movie, grab the puzzle box and start to manipulate it. And just like that, the room is empty. Pretty good uh, setup to our story here. Yeah, you're definitely interested in who the hell these Cenobites are and how this is even going to lead into the main story. Next, we see a couple named Larry and Julia entering the house. We're going to learn that it was Larry's mother's house, I I presume. He couldn't talk his brother, who is Frank, into selling it, so they're going to move in. And we see the house is full of religious statues pictures, dead birds. The kitchen is a roach and maggot-infested mess. And upstairs, Julia discovers a makeshift bed. And Larry recognizes the belongings as Frank's. So they surmise that Frank has been squatting there at some point, but assume he's fled or in jail or worse. And the scene does a good job of setting up a marriage of friction and unhappiness. Just a general lack of satisfaction. Right, yeah, you can tell Julia isn't all that hyped up on moving into this decrepit old house. And, you know, Larry is determined to make it work. He's saying, we can be happy here. And, you know, Julia's kind of brushing it off like, yeah, like, sure, whatever. 
Julia is kind of one foot out the door with Larry here. Larry ends up receiving a call from his daughter, Kirsty. And while he talks to her downstairs, we see Julia go through Frank's belongings. And she flips through his pornographic photographs before finding one of him that she chooses to pocket. And then afterwards, Larry and Julia agree to move in and try to make this work. So on moving day, Kirsty arrives to visit her father as he and a couple movers attempt to get a mattress upstairs. And we do learn that Kirsty's real mother is dead and Julia is her stepmother. So much like all great fairy tales, we have an evil stepmother here. True, very true. More importantly, we're about to learn the driving motivation that ends up guiding this plot. Because we see Julia upstairs looking at the picture of Frank that she confiscated. We then get a flashback to him arriving at her home, soaked from the pouring rain. He stands at the door and he asks Julia, can I come in? I'm Brother Frank. <laughs> Some good uh, overdub here with Frank's lines. <laughs> Definitely. Can I come in or not? Do you have a towel? <laughs> so Brother Frank's arrived for the wedding. And after her hesitation, Julia lets him inside the house. And after Frank asks for the towel, Julia is snapped out of her memory here because Kirsty is asking for a towel after a mishap with the kitchen sink. And we know that Kirsty doesn't have the best relationship with her stepmother. But as she makes small talk, she notices Julia has walked away. And it's a good moment of showing how withdrawn Julia is becoming due to all these inner thoughts. She's almost hiding from the family. Right, yeah, she's avoiding Larry, she avoids Kirsty here, and she just wants to be left alone. She's just living in this daydream that she's having with Frank, this memory of Frank. She ends up going into the attic where we witnessed Frank's evisceration. She hears Frank ask her what they should drink to. And as she turns around, we re-enter the memory. And we see that Frank came on to Julia. And Julia was clearly attracted, confused, and overwhelmed. But she chose to take part in this infidelity on her wedding day. I think it is. Her gown is laid out where they have sex. And we witnessed this liaison here. And it's spliced with shots of Larry working to get the mattress upstairs. And we see his hand is coming dangerously close to a nail that's protruding out of the wall. And eventually he does make contact. And the nail just digs into Larry's flesh. And we see Frank in the memory kind of abandoning Julia. And we hear Julia tell him that she would do anything that he wants. But Larry then enters the attic and blood is pouring from this gash in his hand. And there's great shots of the blood splashing on the floorboards below. Yeah, I really love those drops of blood on the floor. Like, they're just so thick and they just splatter. And yeah, I love when Larry cuts his hand on that nail. It's like, it's right as Frank and Julia climax in their flashback here. (laughs) (laughs) Is when Larry is screaming like, ah! (laughs) I like how Larry is squeamish here, like he can't even look at it. Julia's tending to his wounds. And we see the blood unnaturally seep into the floor. And then underneath the floorboards, we see what looks to be a heart growing and beating. 
And the family leaves for the hospital, but we go back up into the attic and witness the rebirth of Frank. Now, this is our season finale. It's our 16th film. And we have seen some incredible special effects this year. But the Rebirth of Frank sequence just may be my favorite out of them all. You know what, Sean? I just may have to agree with you because the rebirth or resurrection of Frank is, I mean, it's just a sight to behold. Like, I love it. I loved it since the first time I saw it, and I love it here again. It's just a spectacle of special effects and shots and interspliced all together to just be a masterpiece of horror cinema. Yeah, from the puddling goo to the arm bones bursting from the floor. We see the spinal column rise out of the slime. We see a twitching brainstem attach itself to a forming brain. It's so colorful, so slimy. A rib cage begins to form as we see fingers sprout out of hand meat. <laughs> then we get this eerie childlike scream from the skinless cadaver, which just sets it over the top. Yeah, I, I've i always loved this scene. This scene just makes the movie, and it's like, you know, in the first 15 minutes, you have this awesome special effects galore, and it's just it's just what you love to see, you know? Yeah, like I said, I caught it on TV one time before I had ever seen it, and it was right at where Larry and julia exit and then we go into this room and witness this and i was like what the hell is this you know <laughs> <laughs> and i just had to see this movie like i watched the rest of the movie i'm sure and once i saw pinhead i was like oh this is hellraiser you know but yeah incredible scene after that we get this dinner party scene that serves to introduce a fairly meaningless love interest for Kirsty. And to also reinforce how disconnected Julia has become towards Larry at this point, because she excuses herself and heads upstairs. Yeah, and I like to, it's not really made clear early on whether Julia resents Larry or if it's like this guilt she's feeling because of her infidelity. It's not entirely made clear, but the character of Julia is certainly an interesting one. Did you like Steve's swallowing his cigarette trick? <laughs> I don't know if that would actually swoon a girl in real life. I think I'd be on my way to the <laughs> hospital if I tried that one. <laughs> I th yeah, I think I might accidentally swallow a cigarette. <laughs> I do like the other old bitter couple when Larry is sharing his story of going to the doctor and the wife is like, doctors, and the dude's like, that's right, dear. <laughs> <laughs> Doctors. So upstairs, Julia hears sounds coming from the attic, and she goes to inspect them. She ends up finding some rats. Your favorite animal, Danny. These rats were scared of uh, Frank's transformation earlier. <laughs> yeah, now they're playing in the afterbirth. <laughs> but then, as she's grossed out by this sight, Frank suddenly grabs her ankle and we get this excellent shot of skinless Frank crawling towards her. Don't look at me. I like how she she heads for the door, but he's like, Julia. I said, don't look. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he tells Julia not to look at him. And when Julia asks who he is, 
because that's what you would do in this situation. <laughs> he tells her the truth. It's me, Frank. And Frank explains that. Believe me, it's me. <laughs> <laughs> I love that line. <laughs> Frank explains that Larry's blood dripping on the floor has brought him back. Beyond that, he simply begs for help. Just help me, would you? <laughs> yeah, I really love the look of Frank in this, let's call it first form of Frank. He's this like tidy, grotesque, rotting gray corpse that has to crawl on the ground because his legs are too feeble to work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's really gross. He's got like po- polyps on his jawline. <laughs> and the word I want to des- like use to describe this film and Frank is gooey. He's just gooey all the time. <laughs> and nasty and sticky. <laughs> Like, he's always got some sort of substance dripping off of his face or his fingers. (laughs) Yeah, he can't go anywhere without leaving a trace, that's for sure. (laughs) We then see a drunken Kirsty stumbling upstairs to use the restroom. At the same time, Frank tells Julia, if the blood brought him this far, he needs more. We then get a tense moment in the hall where Kirsty runs into Julia, who stares her down as Frank watches on from the attic. But Steve comes upstairs in search of Kirsty and interrupts the moment. And I wanted to ask, do you think Julia was tempted to kill Kirsty here? Or is she just in shock? I think she's in shock. But I think Frank's plans were to eat anyone as soon as possible, whether it be Kirsty or anybody. <laughs> he was hungry and he wanted to start growing. But yeah, I think Julia was just in a state of shock at what she'd even seen, if it was even real, <laughs> you know? Those baby legs just aren't working out for Frank, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he needs help. He can't do it. He needs Julia on his side. We then cut to Steve walking Kirsty home. And in this scene, we get our first look at a character called the Derelict. He's this strange vagrant, and we'll see him a bit more, but... We just kind of see him looking at Kirsty here. Steve and Kirsty then embrace for a kiss in the subway. And we cut to Julia awake in bed as sleeping Larry groans. <laughs> oh, like he's like having a nightmare or something. <laughs> so we see that her sexual encounter with Frank continues to play out in her mind. And she's reminded of how she told him she would do anything for him. We then see first form Frank sitting in the attic and Julia enters and she takes a long, hard and unflinching look at his cadaverous form and she informs him she will help him. We're about 30 minutes in and the plot of this film is just starting to really kick in now. And next we get a really awesome dream sequence. I know you're really about these surreal dream sequences, Danny. Yeah, Kirstie's having a bad dream where she sees this body covered with a sheet on an altar or some sort of table, and there's, like, white bird feathers just flying all across the room, and they're stuck on this body, and they're also stuck on Kirsty, and she's hearing the crying of a baby throughout this dream, and she approaches the body and lifts the sheet off and then sees the body of a dead man come up, it was Larry. 
Is it Larry? I couldn't yeah, tell. Yeah, it's Larry. He does look very <laughs> deformed, like something hideous has happened to him. But either way, yeah, she wakes up. Well, Steve wakes Kirsty up from her nightmare, and Kirsty is immediately worried about her father and gives her father a call. Who answers in his, uh, while wiping sleep out of his eye, you know, <laughs> he was awakened by this phone call and answers and tells Kirsty he's okay. You think we can, uh, say that Kirsty had a premonition here? Something of the sorts, yeah. I like when Larry is going up the stairs back to bed and we see Frank is just watching him as he's like, Kirsty, you know, he remembers her. <laughs> We can assume it's not a good thing that he remembers her, right? Come to daddy. (laughs) (laughs) The next day, Frank watches from the window as Julia goes out to put their plan into motion. And we find her at a bar drinking alone. And she ends up picking up a lonely guy and taking him back to the house. We get an anxious bit with them downstairs where the man starts to come on to her. And it's obvious that she's uncomfortable. He even snaps for a moment, fearing that she may be changing her mind on him. But she ends up taking him up into the attic. And in the attic, the man begins to disrobe when he feels one of those pesky old drunken pissers coming on. (laughs) So he goes to leave the room, but he finds that Julia has locked the door. And with his back turned, Julia grabs a hammer from the wall and smashes him in the back of the head. He turns and he takes a nasty hammer blow to the mouth. We can see his lip all deformed and teeth have been knocked out. And as he hits the floor, Frank crawls out of the shadows to perform whatever type of restorative flesh drain ability this is. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I like to call it uh, Frank is absorbing these victims. He's absorbing their blood, I guess. (laughs) That's a good way to put it, yeah. He tells Julia not to look, so she leaves and... Heads to the bathroom. She's still in shock and covered in the blood of her deeds. And she starts to wash off. And when she re-enters the attic, we find that the man has been reduced to some deformed and shriveled up corpse. (laughs) He looks like Frank did, you know, in his first form. Like little, his little tidy legs. (laughs) (laughs) I like when, in a little bit, Julia's going to have to carry this corpse. And we see the little legs flailing about. (laughs) And and we know he's like light because she just picks him up with ease. Right. But now we get a glimpse at a more restored Frank. The the second form of Frank where more muscle and tissue has started to grow. And he's got a pinkish color to him. And he's able to walk on his own two feet now. Yeah, some of his bones are still visible. We can see major veins starting to form through his body still slimy though danny gooey he's still very gooey (laughs) (laughs) and he wants to touch julia he he says julia come here like i want to touch you (laughs) julia is like a little grossed out by the thought of being touched by this gooey hand (laughs) yeah we can assume he has some feeling now if he wants to touch her and this is where we get the infamous come to daddy for the first time (laughs) before he can truly get his hands on julia though larry comes home and julia has some cleanup to do so we do see her carry off the munchkin corpse of this man (laughs) (laughs) she then hides in the bathroom 
and plays sick, sending Larry downstairs for a drink. And before going downstairs, Julia checks back in on Frank and he tells her it will take a few more bodies to fully restore him. And she's still shaken from what she's just done, so she's hesitant. But this is where Frank reveals more details of how he's found himself in the situation. He talks of escaping, and when Julia asks from who, he tells her of the Cenobites. But they're interrupted by Larry calling up to Julia from downstairs. And you can tell that Julia is torn, because obviously she desperately wants to be with Frank. But we can tell she has enough love or sympathy maybe for Larry to at least not want to hurt him in all of this. Right, yeah. She's starting this descent into evil, but she clearly doesn't want anything bad happen to Larry. It is a very push-and-pull thing, as Frank is kind of strong-arming her. Is like, you're not going to leave me. It's going to be love, only real. <laughs> we get some gooey finger-to-lip foreplay here. Yeah, that was nasty. <laughs> <laughs> Next, we get a brief scene of Kirsty at work. And she works in a pet store. She's dealing with a Karen right now. <laughs> yeah, definitely. 80s Karen. And uh, all this scene really does is give us a great derelict cricket munching scene. Right, yeah. The derelict. I didn't know he was called that. I guess derelict or vagrant comes in and gives Kirsty the stare down again. And then she's like, please leave. And then he just takes this handful of crickets and just chomps on them. Staring down at Kirsty. This derelict has a lot of duty on his face. He needs a bath. Who's dirtier, the derelict or Frank's fingernails? I think if you look under Frank's fingernails, you'll find the derelict. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not long before Julia has found a second victim. And one hammer blow to the head, and this guy is getting absorbed. <laughs> We see that Julia is barely phased this time around. In fact, you can see that she becomes more emboldened each time. Like, you can really see it in how her hair just explodes with epic 80s fashion. <laughs> yeah, and I really like the shot after this where Julia's on the couch alone. She's having a drink to herself and she's kind of pondering her actions. And she has a neutral face for a bit. But then we see that she gets this smirk on her, and it just confirms that Julia is just drawn to this adventurous, scandalous lifestyle. Murderous, rather, lifestyle, too. <laughs> yeah, there's no remorse there. We see Frank enjoying the taste of a cigarette, but he still isn't complete. But he now has clothes on, so I guess we can assume his cock and balls have started to grow back. <laughs> Nobody wants to see that fleshy nut. <laughs> Julia reminds Frank that he promised her an explanation and he reveals the box and he tells her how it opens doors to the pleasures of heaven and hell. And in his pursuit of carnal pleasures, this took him beyond his limits of comprehension. We get some brief shots of Cenobites here while he speaks of pain and pleasure indivisible. We see Frank suspended upside down, soaked in blood. We get our first look at Butterball and the chattering Cinnabite, Danny. Yep. Just as grotesque and iconic as Pinhead, in my opinion. Yeah. We then see the female Cinnabite and Pinhead looking on as chains tear at Frank's flesh as he spins around in circles. 
And we see the monoliths spinning also. They're almost a representation of Frank's suffering, you know, because I, I guess we can assume that's Frank's chunks it's adorned with, right? <laughs> yeah, we're about midway into this film, and you touched on it a little earlier about how the Cenobites aren't really the centerpiece of this film. You know, it really is Frank and Julia's story. And as an outsider looking in, you might think Hellraiser is all about the Cenobites or, you know, Pinhead. But what I've always loved about this movie is that, you know, the Cenobites are kind of this third party, this neutral party that is just, you know, happens to be a part of the story when the real villains are Julia and Frank. And I've always thought their story was really compelling and really interesting. And that's part of the reason why I've always loved this movie is that it does have this tale of like infidelity and I really love and it's just a really interesting gothic tale. Like I love the tone of this film, the gothic nature of it. The human element is definitely the driving factor. The Cenobites are awesome. I think we're given just enough. We're also treated to incredible gore and effects elsewhere with Frank. Yeah, the Cenobites are there. Like, I love the Cenobites whenever they're on screen and they make the story totally, you know, they make it work. But again, yeah, the humanity is what kind of drives this story. One point I like to make, too, is I can see how this story would fall flat for a younger horror movie lover but it doesn't in my opinion like it still is so compelling and has enough going on that even a young gorehound is gonna find what they want in this movie you know yeah like if you see that resurrection of frank like you're down for the ride of whatever hellraiser has to bring you know whether it be pinhead or cenobite centric or not you're down for it and i was down for it you know Watching it for the first time, I thought it was a pinhead movie, and that's not necessarily what it is. He's not even named. He's the lead Cenobite in this film. He's cred- That's what his credit is. Later that night, we see Julia accompany Larry as he watches a boxing match. And Larry notices how unfazed by the violence she is, which we're led to believe isn't normal for her. Yeah, Julia says she's seen worse, which at this point she has. We then see Frank pacing upstairs. And he ends up pounding on the wall in frustration or pain. And Larry hears the commotion and questions what the sound was. And Julia tries to convince him not to pursue it, but he insists on checking upstairs. And Julia is clearly frightened by what could happen if Larry discovers the truth. So she falls into his arms, trembling. And Larry does look into the attic, though, and he overhears a screaming rat. So he assumes the sound was probably just the rat's. But as he closes the door, we see a couple of rats nailed to the wall, squirming around. Pretty good effect. Frank is nowhere to be seen. And does Julia not want Frank to kill Larry here? Or is she just worried about being found out? But I think it is a little bit of like, oh shit, like, I still don't want to let go of Larry. Yeah, Larry and Julia head to bed and they start to make love. But Frank steps out of the closet. And begins to approach. And we can hear Julia begging for Frank to stop. And Frank stands at the foot of the bed. And he begins to skin a rat in front of her. And all the while, Larry remains oblivious. 
But as Julia cries and pleads for him to stop, Frank exits and Larry misinterprets Julia as saying all of this to him. And he's just baffled by her mood swings. He's like, I just don't understand you. (laughs) I just don't understand you. (laughs) So he leaves. And then afterwards, we get a father and daughter out to lunch scene where Larry confides in Kirsty about his marital issues. He asks Kirsty if she wouldn't mind stopping by the house sometime and making nice with Julia, assuming it may be the move affecting her, thinking maybe she just needs a woman to talk to. And this scene really only serves to thrust Kirsty headlong into the story, because at this point, we're just shy of the one hour mark. And it's pretty amazing how little our heroine has actually been in the film. Yet, she's already endeared herself to me. I'm interested in how you feel about it because maybe it's the young fish out of water scenario here. Perhaps it's the love and admiration that Larry has for Kirsty that rubs off on the viewer. I can't quite put my finger on it, but we're ready to invite Kirsty into the story. We don't want her to come into any trouble, but we also know she's strong and courageous and willing and able to take care of herself. So... How do you feel about Kirsty at this point? Are you ready to take this journey with her? Yeah, absolutely. Like, I didn't even remember that she was hardly in this movie, really. And I was almost like, damn, there really isn't that many Kirsty scenes. But I agree. Like, I think she totally makes her mark in the few scenes that she's in. She's a fish out of water, and she does have this loving relationship with her father. Through Larry's demise, you know that Kirsty is going to have his back no matter what. And, you know, Kirsty loves her father, no doubt. And she does have this unhappy relationship with Julia. So, you know, there's some friction there. And so, yeah, I just think it works kind of dropping Kirsty in as the real hero in the beginning of this third act here. We see a discussion happening between Frank and Julia on the staircase. And I got to say, Frank looks great in his suit. I like how his goo and blood have stained the clothes. Yeah, this final form of Frank is definitely the most iconic with the bright red muscle and blood on his face and body. And yeah, he's now donned the suit. An iconic look. If the John Wick movies were realistic, John Wick would probably look like Frank by the end of those movies. Definitely. So Frank wants to kill Larry. And despite finally admitting that she doesn't love him, Julia refuses to use him in the scheme. But Frank's getting anxious and he tells her, go find me another victim before the Cenobites catch on and come looking. And just like that, we see Julia arriving home with her third victim. Only this time we see that Kirsty is watching from across the street. Living up to her promise to her father has entered her into this depraved and horrific scenario. Julia and the man enter the attic, but this man is pretty skittish, and he's able to catch a glimpse of Frank, and he begins to panic as Julia attacks him with the hammer, and Frank approaches the victim, just eager to get on with his absorption. And we see Kirsty outside, and she can overhear all of this commotion, right? Yeah, Kirsty is... She watches Julia enter the house and 
she's trying to make her own way into the house and to try and see what's going on here. Frank ends up tossing Julia aside and just pins the man against a wall. And the man pleads for mercy as we see the absorption technique. Don't look. Is Frank. <laughs> the absorption technique is Frank plunging his fingers into his neck. And we even get some nasty drainage sounds this time. <laughs> yeah, Frank must have some sort of sewer system in his fingers. <laughs> he might as well have stuck a crazy straw in his neck. <laughs> Yeah, it almost sounds like someone's slurping the the bottom of their drink. <laughs> <laughs> so at the same time, Kirsty enters the house and Kirsty heads upstairs. And when she goes to enter the attic, this semi-deformed victim stumbles out and reaches for her. And Frank is watching just from the shadows. And then he pops out and finishes the job in front of Kirsty. And he tells Kirsty. That it's Uncle Frank. Come to Daddy. It's Uncle Frank. Come to Daddy. <laughs> In the attic, she tells Frank to stay away from her or else. And Frank's like, what will he do? What can you do? And he pins her up against the wall. And I think it's safe to assume that Frank's levels of depravity are deep enough that an incestuous attraction to his niece isn't out of the question. <laughs> what do you think? Yeah. Uh. Yeah, we don't know exactly what Frank is going to do with Kirsty, but it's safe to assume that, you know, he would be into Kirsty despite being related. <laughs> she delivers a pretty gooey gut punch here, though, huh? <laughs> yeah, Kirsty shows Frank just what exactly she'll do, and she punches him in the gut, and Frank doesn't really have any skin to protect his innards, and she basically punches through his stomach area and we see her hands just covered in goop <laughs> <laughs> she gives him a little uh, nut shot too true yeah of what's uh so far grown of his nuts <laughs> she then finds the box and she can tell it's important by the way frank reacts yeah for, i i like too and frank is like one last time give it back you know He's really upset that this puzzle box is in Kirsty's grasp and he really can't let it go. Even though this is the puzzle box led him to being in the situation. For some reason, Frank is just this depraved soul and he just cannot give it up. Unfortunately for Frank, she ends up tossing it out the window. And while he's screaming and aggravated, she takes the opportunity to escape and we get a great sequence of Kirsty walking down the street in a daze. We can see she's gripping the box and she's covered in Frank goo. And she starts having <laughs> flashbacks of the strange occurrence as she walks past some nuns. And we get like shots. These are the, the slow-mo come to daddy. Come to daddy. <laughs> if there's one... If there's one nitpick in this film, it's these slow down Frank moments. I thought about them a lot. I didn't remember them at all, but I was like, Come these are so daddy. good. Come to daddy. <laughs> Just the way he says it. It doesn't even sound like Frank. You know, it sounds like someone else said it. <laughs> it's just, these are so goofy and funny that like, I appreciate them, but not in the way I think they're intended to be appreciated. <laughs> 
I would cut them. I would just leave it as Kirsty walking down the street in this catatonic state. But, you know, maybe it's good that we have these come to daddy jokes now in fraternity. <laughs> yeah. So I can't hate it that much. <laughs> <laughs> Either way, it causes Kirsty to pass out. So <laughs> it's your uncle Frank. <laughs> Julia. <laughs> Kirsty wakes up in a hospital, and despite her efforts to warn her father, the staff refuses to allow her to use a telephone. I was like, tell him, tell the doctors it's a matter of life or death, lady. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I don't know what they think Kirsty is like guilty of here, because they're like, eh, you're gonna have to talk to the police, chick. <laughs> yeah, they end up locking her in the room. And they leave her all alone with the puzzle box. And Kirsty begins to play with the box. And once again, we see it begin to transform. I love the shots of Kirsty playing with the puzzle box. Like, she's so entranced by it. She seems genuinely, like, intrigued by the box and the puzzle box, you know? It's nothing more than a puzzle box to her. She doesn't know the implications of solving it. Right. We then see the hospital wall split apart and reveal an otherworldly corridor. And Kirsty enters the corridor amidst the sounds of crying children, but she quickly retreats after spotting a hideous creature lurking in the shadows. Now, Danny, what would our season finale be without a callback to our very first episode? So this creature, referred to as the Engineer, looks to me... Like what Belial from Basket Case would look like in his final form. <laughs> yeah, it's this grotesque looking monster who kind of has this tail, I guess. <laughs> I don't know how to describe him, really. <laughs> yeah, he's like a flesh colored giant slug with arms and legs gripping the walls. And he's got a piranha like face with razor sharp teeth. But I just got to say, Danny. That was a very rare basket case reference combined with an anime reference. And I think that's worth something. <laughs> <laughs> it's worth a lot. It's worth the world, Sean. If you want to hear where this all started, folks, and how far we've come, go check out episode one where we covered basket case. So, yeah, we have final form Belial here. Great puppeteering regardless of how this thing looks, because when it hustles down the corridor, it looks incredible and has some really awesome movement. And yeah, I'm not sure where this creature fits into the grand scheme of things. I guess he's sort of like the orb from Phantasm, a type of sentinel that patrols the hell world. Yeah, I don't know. I've seen people complain about this thing before in this film and how it doesn't kind of fit. But... You know, I was just like brainstorming and thinking about how it would fit. And I was like, maybe this is some sort of like, you know, this this hallway that Kirsty is in running from this engineer is some sort of like Cenobite torture room. You know, <laughs> I don't know, because we know the Cenobites are into eternal torture and all that shit. So that's kind of my headcanon. That could be totally off, but it it, it doesn't bother me, really. It's whatever. There's it, enough cool. strange shit going on in this movie to let it slide, I think. There's more egregious monsters coming up. <laughs> That's all I'll say right now. 
But Kirsty escapes back into the hospital room, and the crack in the wall is suddenly gone. But the strange occurrences aren't finished because we see the brick walls begin to smoke. Blood starts flowing up into an IV bag until it reaches its capacity and explodes. And then the chattering Cenobite appears. And he begins to approach Kirsty, and he shoves his fingers in her mouth to quiet her as the other Cenobites manifest in the room. Chatterbox holds Kirsty before this hellish tribunal as Pinhead proclaims, You opened the box, we came. You opened it, we came. <laughs> <laughs> she cries out that it's only a puzzle box, but Pinhead informs her, Oh no, it's much more than that. Demons to some, angels to others. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Pinhead informs her that it's actually a means to summon them. And when she asks who they are, Pinhead tells her that we're explorers in the further regions of experience. Don't know what that means. Don't think I want to know what that means. <laughs> so just about your typical S&M fetish people. <laughs> Imagine if someone said that to you at a bar. Even in an S&M bar, I'd, like, raise an eyebrow. <laughs> Get away from me, freak. <laughs> Kirsty tells them it was a mistake. But mistake or not, they seem intent on taking her along with them. But Kirsty uses her quick wit here and realizes they must have done this to Frank. And she tells them he's escaped. Like, when she asks them, you've done this before, right? Many times. <laughs> I also got to give a shout out to the female Cinnabite voice. I really like her voice too. And she has some great lines like, perhaps we'd prefer you. Perhaps we'd prefer you. <laughs> yeah, that's great. But then Pinhead says, you know, he wants to hear Frank confess when Kirsty tells him that she can take them to Frank. But if you cheat us. Will tear your soul apart. <laughs> <laughs> so, what a crazy sequence. The Cenobites are such strange characters. Incredible costume design and makeup effects. It's equally intriguing as it is terrifying. They're almost indescribable to a degree. They have this otherworldly quality to them, you know. And it just works so well because we do have Frank and Julia as the villain here. But here's the Cenobites as this third party. And they're just like, maybe we will take Frank instead of you. But, you know, that's on you. <laughs> and so you just have all these stories kind of colliding together. Yeah, I like how they're like down with arbitration. You know, <laughs> like, we're not just going to kill you. Because, like he said, demon to some, angels to others. So, clearly they're manifestations towards the puzzle solver, in a way, wouldn't you say? Right. Like, I think they know Kirsty isn't like Frank. Like, with Frank, it was like, we know what you want, so let's rip him apart. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Frank is never satisfied, so let's give him the... The ultimate. <laughs> the ultimate. Oh, no. So at this point, Frank is out of options and has finally convinced Julia to allow him to kill Larry. And we see Larry return home and we know that he isn't long for this world. 
We then get a brief shot of Steve at the hospital searching for Kirsty. And the next time we see Frank, we see that he has donned the flesh of Larry. And this is another great aspect of this film, because I like Andrew Robinson whenever he is in a genre film. He's very likable as Larry. And we get to see his acting chops here because he basically gets to play a dual role because for all intents and purposes, he is now Frank. Yeah, we we often talk about what kind of tropes we like in films here. And I just got to admit, I really love when an actor has to play two roles in a movie because it really showcases their chops, to say the least, right? It shows how far they can take their acting. And I think he nails it here for sure. (laughs) Yeah, you believe that this is you believe you're watching Frank wearing Larry's skin. And I love the makeup on it where it's like the his hairline is like the seam where they had to like sew the skin together. Yeah, there's like <laughs> some goo left over and it's not quite form fitting. It's got creases. <laughs> <laughs> How Kirsty didn't notice this nastiness. We're not sure, but this disguise gets past Kirsty either way. Julia finally gets to have sex with Frank again. Do you think it was at all disappointing that he looked like Larry? (laughs) Well, what if Frank's dick was bigger than Larry's dick? Wouldn't his skin have to stretch a little bit? I'm sorry for putting that image in your head. Truly am. (laughs) We came. You opened the box. (laughs) We came. (laughs) We came. Let's go ahead and close that box right now, Danny. So shortly afterwards, Kirsty arrives and Julia allows her in the house and they both go up to see who I call air quote Larry now. (laughs) Yeah, I wasn't sure how to refer to this Frank uh, posing as Larry. So yeah, air quote Larry. I also also refer to him as uh, Frank and Larry skin. (laughs) That's good. I'm down for that one. Frank and Larry. (laughs) Yeah, that that is Frank and Larry, yeah. (laughs) So Frank and Larry tells Kirsty that Julia told him everything and that it's finished. And I love here how he's like playing it up. Like you can tell Frank just can't control himself because he's like, he was a mad dog, had to be put down. Like he's enjoying it a little too much. Right, yeah. (laughs) He's totally into the deceiving Kirsty here. Kirsty's confused and they tell her Frank's dead, but she demands to see the body and they take her upstairs to the attic to show her the supposed body of Frank, which is actually fleshless remains of Larry. And that's pretty unforgivable stuff right here. <laughs> right. So as Kirsty is left alone in the attic with Larry's remains, the Cenobites appear and Pinhead tells her, we want the man who did this. I like how Kirsty just leaves. She's just like, yeah, she thinks the body laying here is her father. And she's like, no, like, that wasn't the deal. Then she just leaves. <laughs> right. She thinks they want to kill Larry. And she still thinks Larry's her dad. So she's going to go help her dad. And it's funny how she misinterprets this here because obviously the Cenobites were wise to what was going on, right? But 
regardless, Kirsty, in a sense, has defied them here. <laughs> so I don't know if it's a case of you can't trust a Cinnabite or this was what broke their deal. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I think they were I think they saw through that this was not Frank here and Kirsty just misinterpreted it. Julia confronts Kirsty on the stairs, but Kirsty breaks free and warns her father of the impending doom. And it's here in this moment where Frank and Larry says his catchphrase, come to daddy. And that's when Kirsty finally realizes what's going on. I like when she claws his face here and she tears his skin and there's like fleshy tendrils hanging. <laughs> yeah, his cheek is like hanging off. <laughs> Enough of this cat and mouse shit. <laughs> <laughs> he just sells it, man. Like, can we just, you know, give it up for Andrew Robinson's acting here as Frank and Larry? <laughs> Absolutely. Brilliant stuff, man. And just the fact that he's so convincing as Larry, too, you know? You know, he really plays that kind of subdued man really well. Yeah. It's it's the extremity of the about face that makes it so good. But yeah, he's furious after getting his face torn. And he draws his knife as Julia holds Kirsty, And he's approaching them both. And he lunges the blade forward, but Kirsty dodges it. And Frank stabs Julia in the stomach. And we then see there's no loyalty among deviants because he absorbs her. Yeah, I love here how just nonchalant Frank is. He's just like, sorry, nothing personal. And then he slurps up Julia's blood and absorbs her. <laughs> you know, you almost feel bad for Julia because she really did get played, but she was down for it the whole way. So. In a sense, she definitely asked for it. Definitely. We see Julia slump to the floor as Frank pursues Kirsty upstairs. And she hides in the spare room, stumbles across maggot-infested corpses of the victims. And then she ends up in the hall, and Frank forces her back into the attic. And she even trips over Daddy's skinned body here. <laughs> Daddy. <laughs> So she's crying to her father, and Frank slips up here and delivers his confession. The Cenobites appear as the room begins to transform back into its grisly appearance from when Frank was killed. And the female Cenobite tells him, We had to hear it from your own lips. <laughs> this is not for your eyes, child. So many references to not what, like, don't look at this, don't look, this isn't for your eyes. Do you think that has any significance, or is it just a reoccurring thing? <laughs> Hard to say. <laughs> I like here when Frank realizes he's been set up. It's like, you set me up, you bitch. <laughs> you, he, he has a pause, he's like, you set me up, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> so he starts going after Kirsty, but Pinhead and his hooks have other plans. And we see multiple chains flying about the room as the hooks dig into Frank and Larry's flesh. And in all of his pain, he pauses to look at Kirsty. Licking his lips, he proclaims, Jesus wept before chuckling. Jesus wept. We then, we then <laughs> see him torn apart by the chains. 
nice <laughs> head and body explosion. And that's the end of our movie. <laughs> <laughs> that's the end of Frank. Or so we think. Yeah, that's not the end of the movie. Because the Cenobites decide they're not done with Kirsty. <laughs> they say, fuck it, let's take this girl too. <laughs> <laughs> I like when Kirsty gets cut off at the stairs by the female Cenobite. And she's like, leaving us so soon. <laughs> And I like how she's walking up the stairs, dragging a claw-like dagger across the wall. And you can see blood dripping from the drywall as it's carved away. Kirsty retreats into a bedroom, and we see Julia in the bed, and her face has been peeled apart by chains. And she's got the, the puzzle box in her grip. And Kirsty grabs the box and begins to work on it. And we can see the female Cenobite still approaching. And as Kirsty works on the puzzle, Pinhead rises out of the shadows behind her and just towers over her. And he delivers another unforgettable line. We have such sights to show you. Kirsty hurries to solve the box. And as she fondles it in a certain manner, Pinhead gets a bit anxious and tells her, No, don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> she tells him to go to hell and completes that part of the puzzle. I love Kirsty's delivery on the go to hell (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's really good but this quickly dispatches of pinhead and the female cenobite they just vanish i mean it's quite interesting that the first cenobite to go is pinhead the quote-unquote main one (laughs) we've still got the chatterbox and butterball to deal with (laughs) (laughs) we also see steve arrive at the front door and the house starts collapsing at this point and as Kirsty makes her way through the house, we do see the chattering Cenobite. And he's wearing like a bridal veil over his head now. <laughs> it just mysteriously lifts off his head too. And he grabs her. But she starts beating him with the puzzle box. And then she continues to fumble with it. And she triggers another solution to it. And he too vanishes like the other Cenobites. She then runs into Steve downstairs just as the butterball Cenobite sneaks up on him and she yells out to Steve, but the house ends up collapsing on Butterball. So the structural collapse solved that problem. <laughs> yeah, I've always been confused on the other three Cenobites. They were banished away, you know, in in the puzzle box or whatever. But Butterball just got some debris on him. <laughs> <laughs> right. I'm always like, isn't he still alive? Isn't he some immortal? I don't know. <laughs> I think it's safe to assume once she finishes the box, he's gone. But it would have been great to get a Butterball spinoff. <laughs> <laughs> he's just trapped <laughs> in England. <laughs> he just wakes up like, oh, shit. He's got to get a job now. <laughs> <laughs> Butterball and me. <laughs> Kirsty and Steve are then confronted by the engineer at the front door. And I like the engineer delivers a right hook to Steve. (laughs) Steve gets it. He eats that hook. (laughs) So Kirsty and the monster fumble for the box. And they're fighting over it. And she manages to get the box and finish the puzzle. And we see the engineer blasted into oblivion. And Kirsty and Steve exit the house. And we see what looks to be fires starting to burn through all the windows. 
and we then get a close-up shot of Julia's picture of Frank burning. But then we see Kirsty and Steve standing among a bunch of small fires. I guess this is the, what remains of the house now. I don't know. Like, I thought it was supposed to be like a bonfire or something. That was... <laughs> but I guess it is supposed to... It's weird. It is weird okay. because was this it, house in an industrial area? <laughs> I mean, the city is literally right behind them. Like, there's a building right behind them. And it's like, this is not where a house would be. <laughs> it's confusing, but there's also like a chair burning there. I don't know. But they're standing around all these small fires. And Kirsty takes the puzzle box and tosses it into flames. And we then see the derelict approaching. This is a scene I somehow always seem to forget <laughs> when thinking about this movie with the derelict. I forget he's even in it, and I forget this final scene where the derelict reaches into the fire and he grabs the puzzle box and the derelict catches on fire and then he transforms into this skeleton dragon and then flies off. <laughs> it's a what the fuck moment. And it always escapes my mind. Every time I see it, I'm like, oh, yeah, this this part. What the fuck is that? <laughs> yeah, I'm not the biggest fan of that. But luckily, we have this epilogue here where we see the puzzle box sitting on the table with the merchant again. And there's another man standing across from the merchant and he's staring at the box. And the merchant asks, What's your pleasure, sir? And that's the end of our movie. Yeah, the skeleton dragon is all but made up for with this perfect bookend of an ending here with the what's your pleasure line again. And that is Hellraiser. Whether you like it or not, that's Hellraiser. <laughs> awesome, man. So you want to give us your final thoughts? I think... We both really love this movie. Yeah, again, I really love this movie. I've loved it ever since I first saw it. I think the story is really well done. I've always loved how it wasn't really central to the Cenobites. The Cenobites were a piece of the story, but it was always Frank and Julia's story and kind of their downfall. And I think there's great performances all around, some of the best makeup and special effects you've ever seen in a film, and a fantastic score. It's one for the ages, and it's a legendary film, and I love it. It is everything I love about horror. Awesome, man. Would you like to give your final favorite kill of the year? Yeah, of course. My favorite final... My final favorite kill, it's got to be the death of Frank, or as I like to call it, the Jesus wept scene. <laughs> I mean, it's just awesome, you know, Frank gets caught in these never-ending chains and hooks, and he's stretched thin, and then Frank just giving that final line of Jesus wept before... He's pulled apart by the Cenobites, and we finally get to see what sort of torture Frank really went through when he first encountered the Cenobites. However long ago, we're not really sure how long ago that was when Frank, you know, first encountered them. And it's great. Again, I think it encapsulates 
that gothic tone of the film, just the way the Cenobites look and just the cinematography and just the feeling of the scene, the feeling of the movie just has this gothic tone and it's just unapologetic about it. And that's just what I love. It's just what I love about this movie. It's just what makes me love Hellraiser. Good choice. So Sean, how about you? What's your favorite kill? Well, you know, it would be easy to choose Frank and Larry skin getting shredded apart by the chains at the end. And that's exactly what I'm going to (laughs) do. However, I think you said enough. So I'm going to give an honorable mention and talk about the first hammer kill of the film. Because what more can be said about the best kill in the movie than you just said? And it's the only Cenobite kill. But the first kill that Frank and Julia perform is an expertly crafted sequence. From the moment he turns his back on Julia and we see her reveal the hammer on the wall, it's really great stuff. Then he takes the nasty hammer blow to the head. But what is really vicious is that crack across the mouth because we see that it has literally left his face deformed. Teeth are missing as blood pours from his mouth. Nasty stuff. I couldn't tell if his teeth were missing because of the hammer shot or if because he was British. (laughs) Well, I will say too, this man was already dealing with some seriously problematic male pattern baldness. And then you do this shit to him? Not right. (laughs) So how about a favorite scene, Danny? Last one of the year. I mean, come on. What else am I going to say? It's Frank's resurrection. Come on. It's fucking awesome. (laughs) I mean, it's just a marvel of special effects and shots and carefully edited sequences. And you have this gooey corpse coming together to form a person. And nothing is better than that first scream, that visceral scream that Frank lets out when he's realized he has become somewhat of a human again and he lets out this belting scream and it's just perfect it's a perfectly crafted scene you know i can't say enough i love the effects in this movie and i love frank's resurrection awesome let me just say this film is not making these choices easy part of me wants to pick that scene too but part of me also wants to pick the scene where Kirsty first encounters the Cenobites. The scene is awesome and delivers some of the movie's most iconic lines, but how can I not go with my favorite special effects sequence in our first year of fraternity? I don't know. Don't make me choose. I may let out that scream. <laughs> uh. <laughs> it's, it's really a coin toss for me. You know, I never remain static. Whether it's my favorite bands or favorite films, I like to live moment to moment and allow things like that to evolve and change. As incredible as the Frank rebirth is, I'll go ahead and go with Kirsty meeting the Cenobites for the first time. The rebirth of Frank at the end of the day is just a special effects sequence. And there's a lot more going on in the scene with Kirsty and the Cenobites. You get the awesome special effects and character designs of the Cenobites. We get some incredible line deliveries and the scene just pushes us towards the epic climax. So 
really good stuff all around. I don't think there's a bad choice. My favorite scene is this movie. Hey, man, you know, that scene with the Cenobites and Kirsty, that would definitely be my second pick. So I respect it wholeheartedly. But anyway, that's Hellraiser and that's the end of Fraternity. But as Pinhead said, we have such sights to show you. We do. <laughs> so go ahead and follow us on Twitter. Our at is at Fraternity. We will still be posting while we're on our little hiatus. And we will also be giving you the date of when you can come back and see those sights. Absolutely. So happy holidays, everyone. Merry Christmas. All that jazz. We love you. We love to hear from you. And we love to do this show. And we're going to keep going. So thank you, everyone. And have a wonderful night. And have a wonderful holiday. Happy New Year, everybody. Happy New Year. Happy New Year.